You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You have tuned in into 3CR's program, Behind Closed Doors. This program explores all topics related to sex work. We give sex workers and allies a comfortable space to share their experiences. We also appreciate questions from the general public. Behind Closed Doors aim to uncover what the sex industry is really like. Our program exists to bridge the gaps. Please be mindful this program is not suitable for little years as there may also be explicit language use. Please connect with us on Twitter at bcd3cr or email us at bcd3cr at gmail.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR 855 AM and Digital Radio. I'm Dean Lim and I have Sassy with me today and we're going to have a quick chat about what's happening in the state of Victoria. Hi Sassy. Hi Dean, how are you? I'm really excited. The news is just blowing up. There's so much uh, that's happened. But first of all, let's chat about an online event that we attended. It was for the Roberta Perkins Law Project. So Sassy, what's what was that all about? Australia's first trans-led legal service for trans people and gender diverse. And what organisations were behind this? Um, it's Sankita Legal Service and I believe um, Transgender Victoria was involved as well. Do they have a, a trans lawyer, for example? Yes, um, Sam Elkins. So Sam Elkins is lawyer with the Roberta Perkins Law Project. I grew up in Melbourne and I heard about Roberta Perkins in the 80s and 90s and I actually saw her on the news and I, I never knew uh, the magnitude of and the historical relevance what Roberta had done. You know, Roberta, you know, um, was an absolute pioneer in sex worker rights and transgender uh, mm-hmm. rights as well. And Roberta was a street-based sex worker in Sydney. And, you know, to hear all these people talk about Roberta and what she did accomplished and now a, you know, fantastic project in her honour, that's just amazing. It is amazing. I've actually never heard of Roberta Perkins. I was a baby when uh, she was she was <laughs> she was an advocate, but I do heard a lot about her good friend Carmen Rupert and um, they actually have worked together and advocate together back in the 80s. I did a bit of research about Roberta Perkins. She passed away just a couple of years ago, 2018. She is a very active activist to, and also a very active advocate for transgender people and gender diverse. How do you feel about having you know, witnessed such an incredible historic event? Oh my God, I was, yeah, I was overwhelm I guess <laughs> because it's someone I always look up to somebody who who always trying to make changes because we always want to make changes we want our equal rights we want our human rights yeah it was amazing I, I feel really good I mean like we've been doing this as well as especially at behind closed door we always trying to make changes we're trying to have our equal rights um basic human rights to be honest so yeah and yeah i look up to to definitely look up to roberta perkins and thank you for introducing me to her it's good that we can share the knowledge and Mm. i think also it's about raising awareness of who has gone before us in the community and to be respectful of what they've done and also to to share it share the knowledge so sassy why do you why do you think 
such a service was launched? I think um, back to what I said earlier, it's all about equal rights and human rights. We also want to have a better future for our younger generation. So we don't have to go through what we have gone through in the past. I mean, even though I transitioned at, at, uh, in the late 90s, I still go through hardship. So we want to make changes. Mm. I think this service will provide that. And it's a free legal service for trans and gender diverse people based in Victoria. I was, I was also very fortunate to be still alive and witness these changes and making a better future for our new generation and even us. Mm, it's a mm. great world for all of us. Fantastic. Thanks, Sassy. Thank you, Dean. In other news, as a reminder, our last week's episode was with Cheryl Overs and Estelle Lucas, and they were informing us of a temporary project called Sex Workers Voices Victoria. The website is swvoicesvic.com. Their Twitter is at swvoicesvic. And that is a, a group that's helping everyone put together submissions for Fiona Patton's Law Reform Review. And submissions are due pretty much in a month's time. Also, major news. Over this last week, there was the announcement that in the Victorian Labor Party, it is currently consumed by a branch stacking scandal in which a former minister has been referred to Victoria Police and a corruption body. So the sacked minister, Adam Somurak, was Marlene Caruso's representative in the upper house of the Victorian government. So people might say, well, who's Marlene Caruso? Marlene Caruso was the minister in charge of Consumer Affairs Victoria. This is the department that is going to receive Fiona Patton's findings of the Sex Work Law Review. I say was, as in Marlene Caruso resigned this week. The sacked minister, Adam Sumurek, was Marlene Caruso's representative in the upper house of the Victorian government. He was therefore responsible for answering questions about sex work in the upper house. Now, the Victorian government cabinet reshuffle will affect Victoria's path to decriminalising sex work. There is so much more to come. Always stay tuned to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR 855 AM and Digital Radio. We are Australia's only sex worker radio show. Breathe in and out. You're listening to 3CR. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR 855 AM and Digital. I'm Dean Lim, and today Kitty Galore and I will be chatting with a Victorian politician. Hi, Kitty. Can you introduce our guest for us? Hi, Dean. Yes, we'll be chatting with David Limbrick of the Liberal Democrats Party, who is a member of the Parliament for the Southeastern Metropolitan Region. David sits on the crossbench in the Upper House. As we know, the government needs the support of the crossbench to pass Victorian legislation. And as a member of the Liberal Democrats, David is guided by the principles of libertarianism. This means he greatly values the individual rights of Victorians, including us sex workers. His party supports the full decriminalisation of sex work. In May of this year, David was selected to sit on the committee conducting Victoria's coronavirus inquiry. This inquiry will examine Victoria's response to the coronavirus pandemic. During the inquiry's hearings, David questioned the inquiry's witnesses, asking a range of questions, including a question about sex work. The inquiry's witnesses include ministers, government officials and other experts. Since entering Parliament in 2018, David has taken an interest in the rights of sex workers, 
We've got a lot of questions for David today, so let's welcome to our show, Mr. David Limbrick. Hi. Hi, Kitty. Hi, Dean. How are you today? Good, good. Thanks for being on our show. David, before we dive into the question you asked at the inquiry about sex work, can you tell us a bit more about your party, the Liberal Democrats, and your view of the government's response to coronavirus? Okay, so the Liberal Democrats is what you'd call a classical liberal or libertarian party, which in basic terms means that we think the role of government should be to protect people from each other and not protect them from themselves. So we care about individual rights. We care about people being free to act and have ownership over their body and conduct transactions. How this relates to sex work is pretty obvious in that we believe that sex workers have ownership of their own bodies and agency. They should be free to conduct their business with other people uh, free from government interference, with the only exception being to when there might be coercion involved. So we're all about consent and we want to maximise consent and minimise coercion, basically, is what we're all about. Since I was elected in 2018, a number of times I've engaged with sex workers and listened to some of their issues. And I've brought up a number of issues in Parliament. The first issue that I brought up was around debanking, the idea that banks were not dealing with either sex workers or sex-related businesses for various reasons. And Another issue that I brought up is the issue of decriminalizations. Last year, I actually put forward a motion in support of decriminalization. I know that the Labor Party in their 2018 platform supported decriminalization, but hadn't actually made any moves on it, which was a bit frustrating for everyone, I think. So I engaged with some people in the sex work advocacy space to hear about you know, what they thought. We put forward a motion. We didn't actually put that to debate because... I think the same day that I put the motion up, the government announced that they were having a special inquiry to look at decriminalisation and the complexity around that, um, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. And that's being chaired by Fiona Patton, who's a longtime advocate for sex workers' rights. And so that was a very good outcome. So um, we haven't debated that motion in Parliament. But of course, at the moment, the issue is all around uh, coronavirus. So With regards to the response to the pandemic from the government, there's a lot of things that I haven't been happy with. I accept that the government needs to make some restrictions for Victorians in order to protect them from each other, from the transmission of the virus. However, some of these restrictions I don't believe have been uh, based on any sort of science. uh, And we uncovered that in this uh, inquiry a bit the other week. I think some of the some of the restrictions are far too conservative and I don't think that they've got the balance quite right on some of these things. In the last sitting of parliament, the Greens actually put up a motion to set up an independent inquiry, which I strongly supported. Uh, that failed. There was three crossbenchers that opposed it, which is why it failed. The Liberal Party also put up a uh, motion to have an inquiry which was independent and not chaired by the government. That also failed for similar reasons. We were very disappointed by that because I think just about every other jurisdiction in Australia is having an inquiry that is not chaired by the ruling government of that state or federally as well. So in federal parliament, it's not chaired by the government. I think it's chaired by Labor. And even in New Zealand, they're doing something like that where it's not chaired by the government. So Jacinta Ardern has set up an inquiry. For some reason, Victoria didn't want to do that. So what the Premier did was to request to the an existing committee called the Public 
Public Accounts and Estimates Committee, which is a, a standing committee to have an inquiry into the government's response. And as a concession, all the interest of people who wanted to set up these inquiries, they would allow one extra crossbencher to be added to that committee. And so the crossbench went through an election process and I was elected to go to that committee. So the committee has five government members and five non-government members. But as the committee is still chaired by the government, the government can still control the committee. So it's not ideal, but we are able to look into what's happening. And so we've had a public hearings uh, in, a couple of weeks ago where we got the Premier, we got the Health Minister, the Chief Health Officer, a whole bunch of senior public servants who are advising the government and a whole bunch of other ministers. And we were able to ask them questions in, in a limited time frame and but with regards to sex work i'd engaged with some people from sex work law reform victoria they told me about their concerns with the restrictions i'd noticed from the federal government's plan for easing that uh, they explicitly stated about brothels and how brothels were uh, prohibited in all stages of the easing which i could imagine from a sex worker's point of view that's quite concerning in that the only mention of sex work is that it's prohibited throughout all stages of easing, which is not a good thing. Uh, however, as many of your listeners would be aware, most sex workers don't actually work in brothels. Um, they work in a variety of different settings with a variety of different risks to disease transmission. And so this is what I asked the chief health officer about is, you know, will clarification be provided to uh, people that work in that industry and will consideration be given to those varying risk profiles because it's understandable that a brothel might be considered a higher risk because you've got a lot of people congregating in a confined space but clearly not all sex workers work like that and so I think due consideration to risks must be given rather than just lumping all sex workers into one category and prohibiting the lot. We'll wait and see what clarification they actually provide but at the moment my reading of it is that all sex work is still prohibited and we're not sure when that will change. We've actually talked about this in relation to the federal government's three-step framework. We've discussed that on previous shows and we'll link that on our Twitter as well. You know, Kitty, this has raised so many issues for us that we constantly talk about on Behind Closed Doors. You know, what, what do you think, Kitty, about all of this? Well, I think it's fantastic that David is taking all these questions specifically related to sex work to Parliament because someone needs to ask these important questions. And thank you so much for doing this, David. I've got a question for you. Because mm. we're currently in a global pandemic, when do you think it is justified for a government to strip citizens of their individual freedoms? That's a very good question. Look, I don't think it, it's ever justified to strip them of their individual freedoms. But in a pandemic situation, we have to take into account the harm that someone could possibly cause to another person. And so I do think that it's a valid role of government to prevent people from harming each other. And that harm can come in the form of disease transmission. But any restrictions that are placed by the government need to be uh, based on real evidence and they need to take into account all things in that situation, because it's not just health effects here, you know, there's people's livelihoods, there's there's all sorts of other consideration and individual rights. And 
I've been quite concerned about the way that the government's gone about this. I think they've done it in a very heavy-handed way. At first, they were sort of relying on uh, voluntary cooperation, making requests, and a number of governments around the world have actually done that. I know that uh, Japan, for example, they haven't had any lockdowns at all. In fact, the government doesn't have the constitutional uh, capability to be able to lock down its citizens. They're prevented from doing that. They don't. The government doesn't have the power to do that. But they've been making requests to businesses and individuals and saying, please engage in these social distancing things. Please don't open this type of business. And they rely on social pressure. But, you know, some businesses believe they can open safely. And if they choose to open safely and customers choose to go there, then that's fine. Now, the government here has relied totally on setting out these declarations and policing it and heavy-handed policing. So we've seen the fines in Victoria. This is another thing that we discovered in that the fines in Victoria have far exceeded any other state. So they've, and they're very, very big fines, like 1600 odd dollars. Like this, this is a very large sum of money for anyone. Now they've backed off a bit on that. I know that the police are reviewing all of the fines that are given out. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite concerned about the over-policing of this. And, you know, you hear lots of these stories, you know, you would have heard the story about the girl who went driving with her mum on a learner's <laughs> thing. And, you know, then they, they withdrew it. And then you hear these things about people want to go fishing and stuff. And they say, no, no, well, that's prohibited. And then we found out during the inquiry that there was really no evidence around that. They just sort of decided that that wasn't really exercise and surfing is and you can imagine people who this is if this is an important part of their life they feel ripped off because they're like well you know these people have decided made these decisions and restricted me from taking part in in my life with no real justification so you know they have a right to be upset about that and even more right to be upset if they get a fine for it i think so i'm not happy with the way that they've gone about a lot of these things david you certainly do raise some interesting points especially about how you know there's a you know a range of new laws the increased police powers mm. and you know how you've raised concerns about how the police has enforced and fined people mm. so david how important do you think individual rights are at a time when our state faces this unprecedented threat of a pandemic well individual rights are always important and i think that if i can look at one of the good things about the pandemic if i'm trying to be optimistic in that People are very, very uh, acutely aware of their uh, liberties when they're taken away. And so everyone in Victoria, you know, I've, I've said for a long time that the people that uh, appreciate and defend their individual liberties the most are the people who've lost them. And if you talk to, you know, refugees who've come to live in Australia and lived under tyrannical regimes, you know, I've spoken to refugees who've who've literally escaped, you know, communist re-education camps and they've had people murdered by governments and things like this. And these people have a deep appreciation for their individual liberty because they've had it taken away. And a lot of Australians don't really have a deep appreciation of that because they've never experienced any sort of restrictions on their liberties. You know, we're a relatively free and prosperous country, or we used to be anyway. But now we're in a situation where everyone's had their liberties restricted in quite a dramatic way and they're very conscious of it and they're asking questions, you know, why why am I being stopped from doing this? And, you know, it's not just things that people might consider, you know, like going fishing or golf or whatever. People, people think that this is trivial, but I think that it's not the role of government to rank people's individual liberties. You know, these things can be very important to some people and trivialising it 
trivializes that person's life. And when it's more serious things like it's stopping a business from opening or in the case of sex workers, stopping them from earning a livelihood, we need to be very focused on are these restrictions valid? Is there a real justification for this or not? I feel that the government is doing some of these restrictions. They're just doing it to simplify the messaging and policing of it. They were criticised earlier on for their messaging was a bit complicated. And so they just simplified the messaging. Their messaging would just stay at home, you know, stay at home makes it easy for them to police, it makes it easy for them to talk to the media. But in the process, it throws individual liberties under the bus, which I think is unacceptable. To my mind, they can't disrespect people's liberties just to make their job easier. Tune into the station that gives voices to sex workers. Subscribe to 3CR. So obviously to reduce the curve and to stop the spread of COVID-19 within Australia, there needs to be some restrictions in place. And to some extent, we can all agree with that. Where do you think the balance lies between effective public health measures versus individual rights? We need to look at what is the actual risk of transmitting a disease and how does that risk compared with other risks that people might have in their daily life. You know, people take risks every day. Like you get in your car and you go for a drive. That's a risk. In fact, it's quite a serious risk. You know, if you have an accident in your car, which is quite possible that happens every day, you can die or you could hurt someone else. And so there's risks that we take every day and we could eliminate that risk. If you gave the issue of road safety to an expert, and said, your goal is to reduce the road fatalities to zero and you have unlimited power to do that, of course the expert's response would be, well, let's just ban cars, right? Let's just ban people from driving. But to most Australians, that would be considered an unreasonable response because most Australians, they might not think about it every day, but they're prepared to take some sort of risk in order to live their life. And this is the same with any activity. There is certain risk involved. You know, in sex work, there's certain risks involved. And people are choosing to take risks or not based on their perception of risk. And I think this is what we need to be thinking about is what is the evidence that these things are actually causing harm to other people or not. Now, the overall goal is not quite clear either. Uh, Kitty, you spoke about flattening the curve. Originally, the idea with flattening the curve was to try and keep the number of serious cases below the capacity of the healthcare system. The idea wasn't to eliminate the disease. The idea was to make sure that our health system wasn't swamped by people requiring ICU beds and ventilators and all this sort of stuff. Now, as it's turned out, the very harsh measures that we've taken have been wildly successful and they've not only flattened the curve, they've they've smashed it. There's almost no cases. Now, this is a problem because ultimately there's only a few outcomes that can happen here. One is the unlikely outcome that we totally eradicate the disease from Victoria. But the downside of that is that we would become, you know, Fortress Victoria or Fortress Australia. You know, we wouldn't have international travel. We wouldn't have any of these other things until the disease goes away from the rest of the world. And I don't think anyone thinks that's a realistic outcome. So the other two scenarios, one is herd immunity, where the disease spreads in a controlled way throughout the community until such time as most people are immune to it, or we get herd immunity through a vaccine. And with the curve so low, 
at the moment and the number of people with the disease so low, natural herd immunity would take years. It's just not mm. going to happen. So it seems to me like they're sort of betting the farm on a vaccine, which we're still not certain is actually going to come. Um, I know that there's a lot of research and a lot of money going into it, including in Australia, but there's no guarantee that we'll actually end up with a vaccine. Uh, there's, I don't think that there's ever been a vaccine for a coronavirus before. You know, we've got some of the best minds in the world working on this, so, you know, maybe they can do it. But I remember when the AIDS pandemic started out in the 80s, everyone was hopeful that we'd have a vaccine within a year, and here we are decades later and we still don't have one. So, you know, we've got experience with putting all our hopes in a vaccine and it not working out. I really hope that we do come up with a vaccine quickly. You know, even in the best case scenario, a vaccine is not going to be coming this year. Uh, it takes a long time to trial these things. It, if they made a mistake with it, it would be one of the biggest mistakes in human history. So they're not they they can't rush it. They've got to they've got to be very careful about uh, releasing any sort of vaccine. It's going to take time. Thanks, David, for you know being on our show today. You've raised some really good points and insights into you know how government works and how you've been involved in trying to you know support our industry, the sex worker industry, as well as the general public. Given we are now living under a pandemic and sex work can be seen as harmful if it transmits the coronavirus, when we come back from the announcement, we will ask David more about his role with the inquiry. And let's also remind everyone to support 3CR Community Radio during Radiothon Week. You're listening to Behind Closed Doors, Australia's only sex worker radio show on 3CR 855 AM and digital radio. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Welcome back. You're listening to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR. I'm Kitty Galore and I'm with my co-host, Dean Lim. We're interviewing Mr. David Limbrick from the Liberal Democrats. David, we've got a question with regards to the harm principle and specifically with the global pandemic now occurring, what would the harm principle say about the government's justification for closing down businesses, specifically about the sex industry businesses? Yeah, so the harm principle for those that aren't aware, is around the only justification for state intervention is to prevent harm to other people. And the only justification for removing people's liberties is to prevent harm to other people. So if a business can operate in a manner where it doesn't cause harm to other people, then it should be allowed to operate, in my view. So it's pretty straightforward. The, the question is around the science and the evidence of what is a reasonable uh, consideration of harm. So specifically with regards to sex work, I think that if you look at some of the other um, business types that they're talking about, it's some areas of sex work should be classified, I think, similarly to those. So one of the one of the business types which is similar to some types of sex work would be massage. So this involves, you know, personal contact with other people. And to my mind, certain types of sex work should be put in a similar category to that with regards to disease transmission risk. Other types of sex work have higher and lower uh, risk profiles. And so this is what I hope that the, the chief health officer will be giving consideration to when they go through these easing processes of, you know, what are the various types of sex work and 
those risk profiles, how do they relate to other types of work that people might do and the risks that they might be taking? And if there is similar risk to something that's uh, going to be allowed, then that activity should be allowed as well, I think. I'm being very optimistic, hoping that they'll actually give it that much consideration. But, you know, that's my expectation, you know, that this, the Chief Health Officer gave a commitment to those sort of clarifications. So, you know, it's my job to hold them to that, I think. David, as you've mentioned, you know, as Victoria has issued directions banning certain types of businesses, the government's actually failed to distinguish between brothels and private sex workers. Now, these two sectors of the sex industry operate very differently and arguably carry different virus risk profiles. Why do you think it's important for governments to understand and recognise how the various sex work sectors operate? Because lumping all of these different types of activities into a single industry and then outlawing that entire industry is totally unacceptable. And they don't do this for other industries either. Like if you look at the restaurant industry, for example, they've got various activities that have been allowed during the pandemic. For example, they've allowed uh, takeaway to occur, right? So they haven't just outlawed the entire industry. They've said, okay, for those businesses that can engage in takeaway services, they're allowed to keep continue doing that. And now that they're open, um, they're saying, okay, well, restaurants that can have a certain number of customers within a certain space are allowed to operate. And those businesses that can manage those risks can continue to operate. So I don't think it's unreasonable at all that the sex work industry be given similar sort of consideration to the different types of activities and the different risks. And, you know, there, there may be some obligations on the on the sex workers to have some sort of management of those risks, as with other industries. But, you know, just a blanket banning, you know, saying sex work equals brothels and outlawing the lot until the pandemic's over, I don't think is a, a reasonable proposition. And Dean and I laugh about this all the time because we as private sex workers, we never feel like we are operating as if there were a brothel or an escort agency. Isn't that mm. right, Dean? That's right. That's right. And we actually talked about that as well on previous episodes. Join us next Thursday, 6pm, for part two of our chat with David Limbrick about the COVID-19 inquiry. You're listening to Behind Closed Doors on 3CR 855 AM and digital radio. 